Phantomaniacs, welcome to the newest episode of the Needless Things Podcast, where we talk about toys, movies, music, and all manner of pop culture dorkery. I am your host, Dave, and today we're going to be talking about... The Undertaker! 30 years of the dead man! We are going to spend this entire episode, except for the intro of course, celebrating this incredible entertainer uh sports entertainer athlete everything this guy that will never ever be equaled in the business of professional wrestling or or honestly in the business of entertainment in general but before we get to talking about the undertaker we of course have a little bit of news. First up is the fact that Wonder Woman, is, or excuse me, Wonder Woman 1984 is now going to be released in theaters and on HBO Max on Christmas Day, December the 25th. Uh, I think that's a pretty good decision. I don't, I still don't quite understand who's going out to movie theaters, but whatever. Uh, the fact that it's going to be on HBO Max, I think, is great. I think it would be even greater if HBO Max was available on the Roku. Apparently, uh, according to our friend Arian, they have reached a deal with Amazon to be carried on the Fire devices. But I don't know if that means you'll be able to subscribe through Amazon and then watch it on Roku. Because I, from what I have seen... If you subscribe through another service like YouTube TV, you don't actually get HBO Max. You get like HBO Go or HBO Now or some reduced version of uh, HBO Max that doesn't have all of the stuff that's the whole reason you want to get HBO Max. So I I don't know. I'm going to have to look into this a little more closely. But we absolutely want to sit in the Phantom Zone and watch this thing on the screen uh, maybe not necessarily on Christmas Day, since that's going to be my third day of five 12-hour shifts in a row, because I really lucked out this year and took it in the you-know-what. Uh, but, you know, right around that time, we're, we're going to want to watch the movie, and I'm excited that we will not have to brave the dumb public to see it. So that's great news. Even greater news, this just popped up on Instagram today, uh, the 19th of November, Anthrax is releasing an Among the Living graphic novel. And this is both thrilling and torturing to me because naturally, you know, it's a metal band that's heavily focused on merch. So, pardon me, I've got to wet my whistle before I get into all of the different versions of this graphic novel that are going to be available. Uh, There is a standard edition hardcover, standard edition softcover, dread exclusive standard edition hardcover, dread exclusive standard edition softcover. And if you know Anthrax, you know their long relationship with Judge Dredd. Uh, Specifically, I Am the Law from the Among the Living album. 
Uh, this Judge Dread cover is by. Okay, sorry, I, I scrolled away from it. I had it. Um, I want to say it's Eric. Uh, what's his face? The Goon Guy, and I think that's correct. Oh my gosh, there's so much information on this thing. It's absolutely insane. Uh, okay, well, I lost it. I'll come back to it because I'm going to read through some other stuff here. Uh, there's deluxe edition with t-shirt, and then there's a super deluxe edition with a t-shirt. And here is where it really kills me. Because the standard edition includes the hardcover graphic novel featuring cover art by J.G. Jones. And that cover art... Oh, excuse me. The Judge Dread variants drawn by Charlie Benanti? Holy cow, that's awesome. I th swear I thought... Uh, Eric Powell was mentioned. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Okay. The, gosh, there's so many different versions of this. It's insane. Okay, the Eric Powell version looks like an old EC Comics cover. Uh, and then Charlie Benanti actually drew the Judge Dredd cover, which is awesome. I did not know he had that kind of artistic ability. And the Judge Dredd cover is great. Uh, and then all of these feature... Well, the Judge Dredd cover doesn't. But the sort of central character of this is a not-man madball, zombie madball, designed by Greg Nicotero. And pardon me, I need another drink for this one. A drink of water, and I'll get into why it's water and not uh, something else in a minute. So this graphic novel features uh, stories written by Scott Ian, Corey Taylor, Rob Zombie, Gerard Way, Mikey Way, Grant Morrison, Brian Posehn, Jimmy Palmiotti, Brian Azarello, Rick Remander, Joe Troman, and more, with art by Charlie Benanti, J.G. Jones, Eric Powell, Derek Robertson, Scott Koblish, Eric Rodriguez, Mine House, I apologize for that, uh, Roland Bashi, Steve Chanks, and Dave Johnson, and more. This is an incredible collection of artists and writers. It's unbelievable. This is, I mean, honestly, if you're an Anthrax fan, this is a must-have. But even if you're just a comics fan, all of those names that I just read are probably blowing your mind. Uh, so here is where things get difficult. Uh, like I said, there's standard edition soft covers and hard covers that you can get for uh, $39.99 standard edition hardcover. $24.99 standard edition, standard edition soft cover, which is totally a thousand percent reasonable. That's a great deal because this is a, I don't know if they actually have a page count anywhere on here. When I looked it over before, I didn't note it, uh, but it's a big thick book. If you look at the pictures, uh, you can go to z2comics.com and search for Anthrax and you'll find this unbelievable thing that they're doing uh and then there's the dread editions which are same price 39.99 for the hardcover 24.99 for the soft cover it's really just a, a matter of which cover you want neither one is more super special than the other one and i think that's really cool and then you get to the deluxe edition which uh, deluxe edition of the graphic novel includes it's a limited edition of 3,333 oversized hardcover graphic novel exclusive cover artwork by Eric Powell so this is the one with the EC Comics cover which looks awesome slipcase for the graphic novel featuring Greg Nic Nicotero's Not Man 
exclusive vinyl picture disc LP of Anthrax's album Among the Living, featuring new sleeve artwork by J.G. Jones and picture disc artwork by Greg Nicotero, limited edition Greg Nicotero Zombie Knotman t-shirt, and three Among the Living-inspired lithographs. So that deluxe edition is $99.99, which... You know, we've gotten up to a hundred bucks, but you've got to consider it comes with the graphic novel, uh, the picture disc, the T-shirt, and the lithographs. I don't really care about lithographs because we are out of wall space for like hanging art. But you throw in the T-shirt, which Anthrax shirts are like thirty bucks. You throw in the LP, thirty bucks. Throw in the graphic novel, twenty-five bucks. So right there, you're already up to eighty-five, and then fifteen bucks more for the little extras and the fact that it's just something really cool. I think a hundred bucks is solid for that. Here's the problem. Here is the problem, my friends. The super deluxe edition of the graphic novel includes limited edition of six hundred and sixty-six. Oversized hardcover graphic novel, exclusive cover artwork by Eric Powell. Slipcase for the graphic novel, exclusive vinyl picture disc, limited edition Greg Nicotero's Zombie Knotman NECA Madball toy. You, you, you see where my problem is here. Limited edition Greg Nicotero's Knotman t-shirt, five Among the Living inspired lithographs, and an exclusive Among the Living gold record plaque custom monogrammed with your name. This will be shipped separately. Here is the here's the thing, you guys. I want all of that. I particularly want the Madball toy. I don't really care about the gold record plaque. But the Super Deluxe set is... Drum roll, please. $399.99. You guys, drop the plaque out. I don't know how much that... That's crazy, because you're basically paying for the Mad Ball, the plaque, two extra lithographs, and that's it. You're paying $300 more. What Madball, NECA Madballs are like 10 or 12 bucks. Now, granted, this is a, a limited edition one, so I'll allow them. Maybe it's 25 bucks. Okay, that's fine. The lithographs, uh, well, if we go back and do the math on the other one, the lithographs are 5 bucks a piece. So that's $25 for five lithographs. So we're paying like... $250 for this gold record plaque that look, it looks awesome. It's really, really like when you go, when you see movies or TV shows and they go and visit the big record producer and he's all hopped up on cocaine, these crazy record producer guy. And they do the walk and talk down the hallway and he's talking really fast. And he's like, all right, here's the deal. I'm going to give you, we're going to give you this and this and this. And he walks by all the gold records on the wall. That's what this looks like, except nicer. It's gorgeous. I'm not saying it isn't worth 250 bucks. I don't want to spend 250 bucks on this thing that I don't have anything to do with. Uh, and maybe I could get it and flip it. I don't know. But this is, you guys, this is killing me. Because I want I want the deluxe set. I want the Mad Ball. But I, I don't want to spend $400. And I don't know... That and and to be fair, they do have a thirty-seven dollar a month payment plan thing that you can do. Uh, but man, 
I just drop the plaque out and give me a diff- another option. Honestly, I don't even want the- Well, I love the t-shirt. I do want the t-shirt. I don't need the t-shirt because I got too many damn t-shirts. But uh, this is incredible. Uh, go check out z2comics.com, and I'll keep you guys posted on what kind of decision I make because, man, ooh, I just I can't spend $400 on this. It's insane. Uh, so anyway, that is your news. All right, so I, I do have a few other things that I want to talk about in the intro here before we actually get to talking about... Undertaker! Oh, yes! Uh, so I, I've got... I'm, I'm sorry, I apologize. Uh, so go to the Needless Things YouTube channel... This week's reviews are the new Marvel Legends Retro Doctor Doom, which is an awesome figure, and for me, now that I've got them both in hand, completely replaces the older Doctor Doom that they put out, and I can't wait to see the Fantastic Four in this retro style. Uh, And a review of Series 2 of the AEW Unrivaled figures. I opened the whole wave up. I I ordered them from... uh, I ordered them from Pringles. They came out of a Pringles can, you guys. Sorry. Uh, It's been a long day, and and I'll explain why in a minute. Uh, Ringside Collectibles got them out to me because I jumped on the pre-order like literally the second they went up. There are shipping issues with this wave. I don't know that everybody's going to get them, to be honest. Uh, Jeremy Padauer has been very uh, open about what's been going on with the production problems, the distribution problems. Uh, I just... Like I said, I knew I wanted this whole wave, so I jumped on it. So go to the Needless Things YouTube channel, like, subscribe, share, do all the YouTube stuff you know you're supposed to do if you want to support a guy like me who does all this in his spare time on his own dime. Uh, Finally, I want to talk to you a little bit about my doctor visit the other day. So I've been talking to you guys uh, since March about DDP Yoga and the amazing transformation that it's made in me mentally and physically in my lifestyle. Uh, uh, three months ago in August, I went to the doctor because I go in every three months to get my blood work done. Uh, I, I was diagnosed with high cholesterol six years ago, maybe five or six years ago, and I've been on 20, 20 milligrams of Lipitor, or excuse me, Atorvastatin a day since then. And the doctor at the time, this was a different doctor, the doctor at the time told me when I asked him, what do I need to do to not have to take this? And he said, oh, you're going to be taking it the rest of your life. This is what he told me. I said, well, I changed my diet, exercise, what can I do? He's like, no, you're just going to have to take it. You have genetic, it's genetic, high cholesterol, you have a predisposition, and you're just going to have to take it. You need to eat better and exercise, but this is not going away. Uh, So, new doctor, starting, I think, late last year, maybe. And then with DDP Yoga, uh, went in three months in... uh, Let's see, August, go back to May. So in May, I'd been doing it for two months. Things looked a little better. Went in in August, and he tells me, well, your blood work looks so good, you've lost some weight, and we're going to cut you back to 10 milligrams a day of this. And if you continue on this trajectory, I think by the end of the year, uh, you're going to stop taking this stuff. So I went in, got my blood work done on Tuesday, and he said, yeah, that we'll, you know, we're, we're waiting for the results, but you've lost more weight. 
Everything looks great. I've got a pretty good feeling that we're just going to take you off this entirely because I, I don't want you to continue taking a dosage if you don't need it, and I can't really go much lower than 10. So uh, once pending the results coming back in, I think we're just going to take you off this atorvastatin entirely and monitor you for the next three months and see what it does. Uh, that's incredible. And that is, you know, it's, I, I credit DDP Yoga because that's the program I'm doing, but also I have to credit myself for for hard work, for willpower, for sticking to this. I've been doing four workouts a week since March. I have not skipped a single workout. Uh, I did miss one one day when the schedule was moving around, but I made it up the next day. So I have not missed a workout in all that time. And doing the yoga, the the body transformation is significant. The weight loss is slow. And I, I don't want to get into all that, but it just is. It's how it is. But this is a lifestyle because I want to, my decision that I made is that someday I am going to go to Disney World with my son's kids and going to walk around. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to go on the rides. I'm not going to be limited. Uh, I'm going to be mobile. And we're going to have a great time. And that's going to happen. And that's what I'm working for now. Uh, I can't fall back into old habits. Uh, I, I will keep this up 100%. So that's that's my doctor news. And then the other thing is, for the first time in my life, I got a flu shot because I like this doctor. I trust this doctor. He's smart. He's reasonable. He speaks to me like a grown-up. Uh, so he said, do you want a flu shot today? And I said, Dad, do you think I need a flu shot today? Like, what do you think? And he says, uh, normally I would say it's pretty much up to you this year. I'm recommending them to everyone because I think it's going to be a mild flu season, but at the same time, there's there's going to be stuff out there. I think it's a good idea to get it. I don't remember. Honestly, I don't remember exactly what he said, but when he said, yeah, I think you should get it, I was like, you know what? I'm going to get it. So I got the flu shot, and the next day, I was pretty much fine, but today, this was two days ago, today, my arm is sore as shit where they put the shot in and I've been sort of lethargic and out of it all day long. I don't feel sick in any way, but I'm just like, and I guess it's my body doing whatever you, I don't know the specifics of how the flu shot works. He told me, don't get me wrong. He explained it to me. I just didn't file it away. Cause I got, I got to think about like toys and movies and stuff. I don't have time to think about science. You guys, I just believe the science when it comes from the science people, I don't need to be able to explain the science. That's not my job. My job is to explain why they make action figures the way they do. Anyway. So I just all day today, just lethargic, slow, a little out of it, not feeling it. Uh, so I think it's it's just in my system now, which is why I'm not drinking uh, my Fistful of Bourbon brand bourbon tonight. As much as I wanted to come home and have one after the day of work I had, uh, I decided water and and a, and a Diet Coke to get a little caffeine, get me, you know, get me pepped up enough to record this intro and put this episode together for you, the people. So I think that's enough intro. What do you guys think? I do believe it is time for us to talk about Dead Man Walking.
Joining me tonight, coming back on the show, Mr. Mike Gordon. Howdy. My fellow host from Audible Interlude, a G.I. Joe podcast, Mr. Noel Wood. Rest in peace. <laughs> and our favorite pro wrestling expert, Chris DePetrillo. Welcome back to the show. Uh, thank you. You are too kind. Uh, tonight, we are celebrating, as is everyone, 30 years of the Phenom, the Dead Man, American Badass, Booger Red, The Undertaker, and we're going to be doing what we do here and just sharing our favorite memories, our favorite things about that 30 years of legendary professional wrestling history. Uh, and I want to start off with kind of let, let's get our feet on the ground and figure out where each of us kind of first found the dead man. What was our first Undertaker uh, memory? And I'm going to kick it off because I actually had a really difficult time with this because my wrestling fandom went in and out. When I was a little kid, uh, I sort of had to sneak watch it. My parents were not big wrestling fans. And I missed Undertaker's debut in 91. I, I wasn't paying any attention to WWF at the time. But I was aware of Undertaker. But, but I hadn't really seen anything of him. And then I, I saw the toys. And I've got to say, I think probably the first time that I really kind of understood how special he was and what a big deal he was, was when we started watching raw, because as a household, we, we lived in the, I guess the zombie wrestling apartment. I don't know. I don't know how to think of it. Uh, and we were big WCW fans, WCW nitro every Monday night. And then Noel, I feel like it was you that convinced us that we needed to be watching raw as well. I, I was probably, yeah, probably had something to do with that. Yeah. And so we started watching Raw a good bit before Wrestle WrestleMania 14 was 97, right? 98. 98? Yep. Okay, so it would have been uh, late 97, I think is probably when we started watching Raw. And the first pay-per-view we bought was WrestleMania in 98. That was our first WWF pay-per-view we bought. Uh, but watching those Raws in 97, it was right after Kane showed up uh, because he was, uh, well, it was this, it was Bad Blood. We didn't see this pay-per-view, but we were watching the fallout from all of this. And to me, everything with Undertaker at the time was the best stuff we were watching. And he immediately captivated me. Uh, Chris, I'm going to guess you probably go a little further back than that with Taker. Yeah, I go back to Mean Mark Callis in WCW. Oh, wow. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, you said I was uh, the expert. Uh, that's, a, you know, a little bit of hyperbole. But, uh, you know, I've been watching wrestling since I was four years old with World Class and WCW and everything. So when he debuted, when he came out at Survivor Series 90... You know, me and, you know, the few friends that I had that were as, uh, you know, hardcore as into it as I was at the time. It was like, that was mean Mark Callis. That was, you know, the dude from the skyscrapers. And it's funny because we used to make fun of him because one of our lasting memories of him in WCW was jobbing to Lex Luger at a Clash of Champions to a Lariat in like two minutes. So it was like, okay, like, how is this going to play out now? Like, is this just 
another character and like when you said like you realized later on like how special he was you know he was very captivating very cool i think he transcended very quickly because even if you weren't a devout wrestling fan you kind of heard the buzz about this guy this character this this concept that they had created and when they put him over hulk hogan a year later even as a kid you know kids adults everybody you know hulk hogan was the it guy you know at that point he had only lost to somebody to set up the win down the line or you know he had finally lost to warrior the year prior so for hulk hogan to be losing to someone it seemed like okay like they're on to something here like you know he's not just the freak of the week and from that point on i think the the elevation i think like every year for the undertaker there was some kind of a milestone going all the way up to this past year with the boneyard match it just seems like no matter how much he scales back or how wacky things got every year has at least one memorable undertaker moment yeah yeah his consistency is like no one else nobody it's funny people talk about there'll never be anybody else like him in the business and they you know i've heard that said about other people too people say it about rick flair people say it about Shawn michaels people say it about stone cold but it's the literal truth with undertaker uh, that magic will never be recaptured. I don't think. Uh, Noel, what about you? So I was, um, you know, when I was 15 years old, when Survivor Series 1990 happened, uh, I wasn't buying pay-per-views, but you could kind of watch a pay-per-view on squiggly vision um, <laughs> if you had the right cable company. So that's how I would essentially live watch a WWF pay-per-view back in the day without actually really seeing everything and just kind of follow along and know what was happening. And they had been teasing that there was going to be the mystery partner that was going to be on Ted DiBiase's team. Um, and when they announced it there, you know, they played this music and brother love comes out and I, you know, you could kind of make out and I immediately saw the face and I knew, Oh, that's, that's mean Mark Callis. That's the master of pain from Memphis <laughs> wrestling. Cause I was watching both of those uh, in advance too. He wasn't your traditional like Vince McMahon, goofy character who's going to get like a few weeks of a few weeks of a push and then just kind of disappear uh he was he was he was just wacky enough but somehow managed to pull that out into being this mega star who was larger than life and as you mentioned like a year later when not only was it surprising they put him over hulk hogan it was strange to me that not long after that he was turned babyface because I never thought that that would be a character you could ever see as being the good guy and the right. top face for multiple decades in the company. Uh, so yeah, that was just the first time I saw him seeing the crowds, uh, how they weren't, they weren't booing him, even though he was a heel, they were just in awe of him. And that was something that you didn't see a lot for a, a wrestler of that at, the, at that time. Interesting side note, you brought up Survivor Series. Have you seen that they're doing a figure, Chris, I'm sure you've seen it, of Dusty in that gear? Yes. With the top hat, with the chicken claw on it, and the big yep. poncho with the red polka dots? Yep, I will be purchasing that figure. Yeah, 100%. That is, that is an instant purchase, absolutely. Even though it's, because technically the gear is from like a photo shoot that was done at Saturday night's main event, mm -hmm. but even if it's a one-shot thing, it's like a weird Dusty, and I've got to have yeah. it. Yeah, and Mattel's always done a good job on the Dusty figures. I like oh, the yeah, previous yeah. Dusties they've done. 
Yeah, they they look great. The the NWA when they did last is one of my favorite elites that they've done. Oh yeah, from like series 63, 64. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But we're not here to talk about Dusty Rhodes. We're here to talk about <laughs> Undertaker. Uh, Mike, why don't you tell us about your your first memory or how you uh, came across Undertaker the first time? Um, well, um, as far as Taker goes, as far as my wrestling interest goes, um, I think I've said this before on this show. I've said it in other shows and, as well. But um, I've only really been seriously interested in in pro wrestling for maybe 20 years now. Uh, I got into it very late. Uh, I was aware of it before that, but not really into it. So I got, um, uh, so around the late nineties, uh, early two thousands, I kind of dabbled in it. Uh, but then, you know, the, um, with, uh, Stone Cold, The Rock, Triple H, all that happening. Um, I got really hooked into it and, uh, but the Undertaker wasn't really part of that yet. Uh, I think he was, that was a point where he was being um, retooled, right? Um, so my first experience seeing The Undertaker was as the American Badass Undertaker. Oh, um, wow. I had, I had seen footage. I was aware of what he was before that, but I hadn't actually seen it before. Um, so he came out as American Badass. Uh, and um, I, I connected with him, but only to a level where i mean it was all reputation like it was all what had come before because everybody had known him i mean and and the way he was being touted was he was just the undertaker he was taker right um so i hadn't really seen him in action um i got to see my second time i went to i got to, to see raw live was in was it february yeah i wrote it down february 2001 and uh, the Brothers of Destruction were facing the Dudleys for uh, a tag title match. Um, and man, when, when Kane came out, it was pretty cool. But when Taker came out, man, the whole dome just, I mean, rose up like I had never seen anything before at, at uh, that level. Um, it was huge. The pop he got and all through the match, they ended up losing the match. Well, they they lost on a technicality because edge and christian came and interfered um but uh you know i think if at the end of the match the the two brothers stood there in the ring and they could have stood there for like half an hour and we would have still had popped huge for them um so ever since then seeing that live and seeing the way he connected with people and uh just the way that uh yeah he commanded the ring as well his presence um, I've been a fan ever since. It's funny. People talk about the, the road warrior pop as being the biggest and most significant crowd reaction. Uh, and I, I think that's just from things that I've seen watched back in the day. I think that's pretty accurate, but the, the undertaker whoosh <laughs> when the lights go out and the gong hits. And even if you're sitting watching at home, you feel that crowd's reaction to what's happening. Uh, it, it's it's wild. His his presence carries beyond just being in that ring on the TV. Like the the character work that he did over the years, and how much he protected the business, and his seriousness, and his work ethic. Uh, all of that are are what give the character and and the man so much weight. But now we're going to dig into it 
and talk about our own personal favorite aspects of the undertaker and uh mike you are going to start us off well even though i was introduced to the american badass character first um looking back i mean instantly looking back at his his previous persona um i i, I was captivated by the aesthetic um you know i kind of sort of lean towards darker characters anyway in literature comics etc cetera, etc cetera. and you know his look the the, the storyline especially between the brothers of destruction which is my favorite aspect of my favorite storyline with the undertaker um is and i connect with that one so much um just I was attracted to it. I, I would seek out. Uh, I remember uh, in, in around that time seeking out. It was so difficult to find them all too. seeking out the comics that Chaos Comics was doing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, that Bo Smith was writing. Co and... Comic shops, not just stocking them. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was. Well, it was crazy. And they were. Uh, yeah, it was really hard to. I think I finally ended up getting all most of the issues but i think there was one that i was still missing but um i don't think i have them anymore but um yeah because unfortunately the story was not great but i was i would i wanted i wanted as much as i could get hold on mike are you trying to tell me a wrestling comic was not great a licensed wwe comic by chaos <laughs> <laughs> by chaos comics um yeah um it, it was lacking, but um, but I, I just wanted I wanted to connect with them and that character so much that that I would seek out anything. They wanted more of that mythology. Yeah, that mythology that is that 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 you know the look. You know, I mean, I think if you look at any character in the WWE or even pro wrestling or even you know period like any character take any character of the modern era you can take the undertaker and you can yeah, i mean artistically you can do so much with that character and i've seen so much great artwork around that character that um you know i, I think that's that's a, an appeal to him um and the whole you know drama behind his entrance um and everything is that goes with him i think is just uh compelling well it's interesting that uh, he's almost like my professor X in that I got into Marvel and I love the X-Men and most of what I love about Marvel came out of the X-Men comics in the same way. So much of what I love about the WWF of that era specifically came from undertaker. You have undertaker, you have Kane, you have mankind, you have the brood, you have edge and Christian, you have the ministry, you have, Angrel. you know, viscera. Yeah. It, I mean, the list goes on of these characters that Midian. spawned out. Yeah, Midian, <laughs> naked Midian, um, of these of these characters that spawned out of this single character yeah. being such a success. He almost launched this dark mini universe within the WWF because he made this character work. If not for him, all of those other characters. You know, what would Edge have been? You know, the fighting gardener or something. I mean, what, what, the, he would have been the edger and he would have carried, run into the, the arena with garden tools. You know, who knows what these guys would have been, or maybe he still would have been Sexton Hardcastle and that would have been okay. Uh, but yeah, that aspect of, of just, uh, he's almost like Batman where he has a certain look, but there are a lot of ways to adjust that look and, and evolve it over time 
while keeping him very recognizable. Uh, Noel, what about you? What is what is your first uh, favorite aspect of the Undertaker? To me, it's well, it's the entire, and especially going back to classic Undertaker, the entire entrance, the entire presentation, but specifically, uh, I'm a I'm a huge geek about wrestling music and i think that it's it's an often underappreciated thing in wrestling uh you know watching i'm watching like a lot of current product right now like AEW has terrible theme songs and i think it's one of the things that kind of takes away from oh i love some of their i love some some of them are some of them are good but some of them are darby allen's is is fantastic um uh Eddie Kingston's music is great. All right. Yeah, yeah. I didn't There's... know we we're going to be talking about <laughs> AEW music. I well, listen, I think that's something that they're, they're getting better at. Um, you go back to the watch like Impact Wrestling and, and some of their, te- their themes were so terrible. They were laughable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it can really make, and I think a lot of people don't realize that that can really make or break a character. With The Undertaker, it was very simple. It was a tolling bell. And it was pipe organs, and it was perfect for his character, and it just filled the arena with this aura. And you know, I didn't get to see him wrestle a lot live, um, but when I did, and I remember, I believe you were with me. Uh, it, it was uh, him and Matt Hardy, a uh, Raw, just randomly. We were not expecting the Undertaker to show up. Yeah, at yeah, it. yeah. And Wait, I don't remember what year that was or anything. Yeah, it was probably like two thousand one or two thousand two. I'd have to go back and look, but yeah. It was we Undertaker was was gone. It was the period where he would disappear for a few months, and when yeah. the lights went down and the the crackle across the graphics around the arena, and it just it puts the chill like just through your spine as you're watching that entrance and being there live is even is even more spectacular. So uh, that music in particular has always been one of my favorites. It's it's, it's you know it's perfect it's a it's a it's a death dirge it's a you know just a slow tolling uh ominous piece of music and uh it's it's lasted i mean obviously it's come and gone over the years but 30 years later it's still what we most commonly associate with that character and it's very different from anything else it it commands your attention it's not another you know i love james johnston and, and the work that he did but uh, most of what he did is very similar, mm-hmm. uh, and especially in the modern landscape, like nothing stands out really. Uh, and the Undertaker's theme through all the different eras of music, through through Johnston, through when they were having r- regular bands provide music, through everything, Taker's theme remained distinctive and unique. Mm. Uh, any more thoughts about Taker's entrance music? I mean, that's what can you say? Uh, I, perfect. I, I'm glad. I'm glad he got away from using Limp Biscuit because that was my least favorite. Uh, <laughs> hero. And that's and that's when I was introduced to him, the Limp Biscuit. <laughs> but it was like you know, so when I got to see him live, the times that I've seen him live, that's what I got. And uh, you know, I, I I'm glad I got to see him live, but I'm kind of bummed that I never got to see that experience of that entrance we'll keep on rolling baby (laughs) what i was gonna say was when we got to that era um you know if you remember he had been out they were you know uh redoing the character revamping the character from the ministry to the badass so his big return was with the kid rock theme when he came out and as they went from kid rock to limb biscuit and everything 
you lost the eerie entrance. You lost that spectacular, you know, type of eerie feel that you would get. But the pops never wavered. Right. So oh, you're yeah. getting these, you know, not pop rock songs, but these modern rock songs, like these radio friendly songs, which were so far off the grid from the original Undertaker character. But that essence was still there because he morphed from being this undead creature of the night, whatever you want to call him, into almost like this you know prison yard badass like you don't want to mess with this guy you know he really was he was carrying himself in a way where it didn't matter that the theme changed or the character presentation had changed you knew who this was and that still sat with the crowd so the minute you heard the engine on that motorcycle revving he was getting the pop, same pop that he would get if the lights had gone out and you heard that bell toll well and well, he and- had that decade of equity built up too the the respect yeah. was there so cuz i remember when he came out and he changed and I didn't like it at first. I didn't. I wasn't down with that. It didn't work. I did the Kid Rock. When it, when it, bleh, I got <laughs> without the Kid Rock. I'm with you. I'm with you. But the Kid Rock was way better than the Limp Biscuit, in my opinion. Like when he changed the Limp Biscuit, that made no sense whatsoever. Fred right. Durst playing Undertaker out to the ring was was a bridge too far for me. Well, and you have to think too that. Even though we love that original Undertaker character, it had been around at that point oh, yeah. in time for a decade. Up. It yeah, needed yeah. to be freshened up. And going to do that, because there was not just the Kid Rock and the Limp Bizkit, there was also the, the Dead Man Walking song that originally was just instrumental and was so terrible. And then they added yeah. lyrics and it didn't get much better. No, um, I like that. You, you've done it now. <laughs> Gone and made a big mistake. But after all that, it made you ready for when he finally brought back yeah, that yeah. dead man character a few years later. Um, and you got to hear that music again. He, he was able to earn that pop uh, when he returned. Uh, it was at WrestleMania 2004 um, when he finally brought that character back. Which is crazy to think about that. He like the, the, you know, American badass, uh, big evil, whatever, era was such a short span Mm -hmm. you know because he's been the undertaker again for 16 years now (laughs) that's crazy it doesn't seem like it uh my first pick that i'm gonna go with is a specific match although it's really more what led up to the match and the what surrounded the match and that is from unforgiven in your house april 26 1998 the first ever Inferno match. Uh, this, I remember, because this was right after WrestleMania. Uh, it was the fallout because they, you know, Kane had been introduced. And for this is where we came into it, where Undertaker would not fight Kane. Uh, we, we missed Kane's introduction, but we came in right after that. So we were seeing... He's my brother. I'm not going to fight him. I'll never fight him. It's not going to happen. And then finally, uh, after Paul Bearer and Kane dug up Undertaker's dead parents and set them on fire on the stage and then choke slammed Undertaker through the his mama his mama's coffin. Finally, he said at WrestleMania, I'll fight Kane. Uh, and then after WrestleMania, of course, you have the pay-per-view where you kind of tie up the loose ends and they have the Inferno match. And Noel, I'm pretty sure you were there watching it with us. More than likely. But we had no idea what this was going to be. There'd never been an Inferno match 
there was no clue. What what are they? Are there are the ring posts going to be on fire? Is there going to be a wall of fire above the ring? What what we had no clue visually what it meant. All we knew is to win the match, you're going to have to set your opponent on fire, which raises red flags in any intelligent wrestling fan's <laughs> mind because obviously they're not really going to set anybody on fire. I mean, it could be worse. They could have they, they could have an eye being taken out on the line uh, as the stipulation. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yes, it could be worse. Uh, but the build to that match was so good. The stipulation, you know, if this match happened now, then next year and for the every year going forward, there'd be a whole pay-per-view called Inferno, and there'd be an Inferno match every year, and there'd be no meaning to it. It would just be, let's get in the flaming ring again. But this had a purpose because Kane, you know, was burned by Undertaker, according to storylines. And this was the culmination of all that stuff that had been going on since late 1997. Uh, so they built it up, and then uh, at the pay-per-view itself, they've got the little little uh, gas lines going around the bottom of the outside of the ring, and they light them up. And if I remember uh, correctly, we all laughed because it's just this little pathetic like 6 inch high flame that goes all the way around the ring. You know, I'm I don't know what you were picturing Noel and and Chris, I'm sure you were watching this at the time. Oh yeah. Yeah, we were watching live because we'd have the pay-per-view parties. So what what and that's what we did. We did the same thing. Do you guys remember going into this? Did you have anything in your head? Did you have expectations or was it more of a like we'll just see what this is? Yeah, it was kind of like the the wait and see type of thing. I remember laughing at how the flames would rise every time someone took a bump. See, that was what made it work for me. That was the point where I was like, okay, I get it. This this is visually, I it's cool. Well, what we were laughing about is okay, like you know, you're getting body slammed, you're getting choke slammed. That's making the flames go up. But if you're actively trying to push someone towards the flame you're moving slowly, so now the flame is low. Right, so it's almost right. like bringing someone's face towards a candle. It's like, all right, you, what are you going to stomp your feet to make the flame come up? Like, how is this going to work now? It, it wasn't, I mean, it, it delivered as far as like being something different and something cool, but I think that there was a lot of buildup in not only like our minds, like, you know, here in this group, but in a lot of fans' minds for something yeah. a little more spectacular. Yeah, I agree. And that was... Um... To be honest, and, and Noel, I want to hear what you think about this in a second. To be honest, I think it works better in hindsight than it did at the time. Because when you take in, when you look back and take in the entire story, it's just cool. And you go back and you watch that match and you realize like that ring was so hot. And by the way, uh, I have audio from dragon con of Kane himself talking about that match that I hopefully will be able to include after this little segment right here. Uh, but those guys being in that hot ring, they've never done this before. Kane did not have time to rehearse. He and Paul bearer had been at a house show, so they weren't able to rehearse. The first time they saw the flames was when they walked out to have the match. Uh, you think about the logistics of what went into that and it, it earns it a little more than what we were invested in at the time as fans just hoping for craziness. They did set somebody on fire. Uh, so Noel, did you have any preconceptions about it versus what it ended up being? No, I, I mean, I didn't know what to expect really. I, I kind of figured they were going to do some sort of, 
you know, flame around the ring. Um, and it's been so long that I'm, I don't even remember how I was anticipating going into it. Um, that's actually what I need to probably revisit. Cause I haven't seen that in the, you know, 20 years. Watching it with a, uh, an older eye that I guess has seen a lot more. It it's, I'm, it's not a, it's not a good match. It's not like <laughs> you're not going to go back and be like, "Ooh, look at the work rate in this thing." But for what it is, I really because I watched it yesterday. I really appreciated it. I uh, I like what went into it. I like the thought that went into it, and of course the the long term long term storytelling that was going on. Uh, I, I I I dig it. Uh, it's worth noting that we got an awesome dive over the top rope from Undertaker over the flames onto Kane and Vader who had come out to beat Kane up. Uh, and that was when he was first starting to do those right. kind of those kind of spots. I mean, honestly, that might have been the first time I'd seen him do that because I don't believe he did it in the Mania match. Uh, did it at Bad Blood in, uh, in 97. Yeah, so I see, and I wouldn't have seen that one. So I believe that dive over the flames is the first time I had seen that from him, and it's wild. Uh, And another thing that's great is, of course, while Kane gets prepared to have his arm set on fire, Paul Bearer and Undertaker engage in some gaga up on the stage uh, where I believe, is it Confederate Yankee? had played Triple H out earlier in the night, so all their equipment is still up on the stage. And uh, Paul Bearer is sort of taunting Undertaker. Oh, you're going to lose! Taker's chasing him and uh, picks up the the kick drum, the bass drum, and smashes it over Paul Bearer's head, which looks extremely painful. Like, you don't fake that. Like, he just smashes it on his head, Bearer gets up. He's gushing. He's got. He's bleeding, which I, I don't think is something we saw a whole lot. Uh, and then, he, then Taker picks up the mic stand, smacks him with it, and then Kane's ready. So they go back down and do the whole business. But it's there's a lot of fun to be had with this match. It, it didn't uh, it didn't wow me, but it didn't bore me. I guess. Uh, Mike, have you even seen this one? Uh, not in its entirety. You know, I've, I've seen clips of it and it looked impressive from the clips I've seen, but I, um, uh, yeah, but I'm more thinking about behind the scenes, the guys working in there and how much it must've been crazy. Yeah. And that's, that's what brings the appreciation now, I think is considering that aspect of it. All right. Um, Chris, it is your turn to share your first favorite thing about the undertaker uh it's actually kind of hard because my favorite thing is not necessarily uh directed at the man himself but i was actually present for some of his most memorable moments um i was there live in the crowd when he fought kane at wrestlemania 14 and i was also there the night that he died at the royal rumble oh Uh, wow yes i i was at royal rumble 94 was uh it was here in providence so that night, I mean, as as goofy and as, as hellaciously funny as that has become through the years, that night it was like, whoa, like what's going on? Like every heel on the roster is running out right now. Like, what is this? Now, and, now tell us, tell us what happened for the listeners in the event that they're not familiar with this incredible spectacle. So Royal Rumble 1994 was uh, Undertaker and Yokozuna in a casket match. 
And everyone figured, you know, it's the Undertaker's trademark match. This is his way to defeat Yokozuna without pinning him. Yokozuna saves face. And instead, you had Jeff Jarrett and Diesel. And even they had, uh, was it Tenru? Um, so, you know, uh, some of the Japanese wrestlers that were on hand that year. Uh, but basically, a flood of guys ran out and just uh, mercilessly pummeled the Undertaker and buried him in the casket. Uh, not, not like a buried alive match, but just, you know, sealed the casket. Yeah, they, and, they like locked it shut. Yep. And uh, as they were uh, moving the casket away or, uh, you know, happy with their dirty deeds, uh, the lights go out and, you know, we get the lightning effect and everything. And we get a message from the interior of the casket uh, with the Undertaker vowing to return for vengeance. And then uh, what we were assumed to be his spirit, but the word of mouth was that it was Marty Jannetty in Undertaker garb, uh, was lifted by cable uh, from behind the Tron screen. And back then it was like a, a grid of like nine or 12 screens. Um, so you would see the ghost of the Undertaker, or the spirit of the Undertaker actually rising to the heavens uh, after being defeated by these dastardly heels. And that led <laughs> to an even wackier thing, which I was not present for, but uh, the uh, legend has it, the people that were there present for it were leaving the building in the middle of it. And that was the infamous Undertaker versus Undertaker match. Uh, at SummerSlam 94 that year. Oh, that's so that, actually on my list. <laughs> that was, uh, I mean, you know, I'm, I'll stop there. We can get into it. But my favorite Undertaker stuff is that era from late 95, early 96 through like the transition into the ministry. So like late 98, early 99, because for years, heel, babyface, he was like this very plodding, very mechanical kind of character to get over the whole undead gimmickry and, and the character that he had. But as they leaned more into the attitude and the influence of ECW and the competition with WCW, you know, we talked about how he did the dive and the Inferno match and then the Hell in the Cell and then the story with Kane. The story with Kane, if it was anybody else, people probably would have looked at it as one of the worst of all time. Like, just, you know, goofy soap opera stuff. We don't want to deal with it. Yeah. But his commitment to the character, the uh, the relationship that he had with Paul Bearer, like the history that was built up there, the tie-in with mankind at certain points, like, they crafted this legendary thing out of stuff that normally would get them laughed out of the building. And then just the way that his character, while he was still being this you know zombie-like or this this undead force you know the, the creature of the night he was doing these uh planches and these topes and more high-risk offense and he was doing that while still pushing himself forward as a badass character so he was mixing in a little bit of everything like he was adapting he was not just coasting on the rep that he had you know very deservedly earned yeah he was going ahead with the time like just as wf was transitioning and wcw was like the industry as a whole was going through that period where everything was just on the up and you know people make fun of him in the later years for kind of coasting by or oh he's coming back for a match like you know he must need the money ha 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 but back then he could have sat there and let rock yeah. and austin and triple h do their thing and he was in there hanging with them every night and I think that's when he was his most impressive was when you had this roster of people that could be linked to him and get some of that residue on them, like the brood or, or viscera, the ministry guys. And then all the while, you know, I mean, Kane was his career to him because Kane went through yeah. so many different goofy gimmicks and stuff. And I mean, he could have been like a utility player on any roster, but I mean, he's, he could have been a life. dentist. 
Yeah. Could have been a dentist. Could have been a Kevin Nash version two. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, my first my first exposure to him was as Unabom in Smoky Mountain when he was Al Snow's tag team partner. So it's like, you know, he he owes his life to The Undertaker. And it's just, you know, there's so much from that era. I mean, everybody remembers the ministry. Everybody obviously yeah. remembers Kane. And it's all within The Undertaker's orbit. So, I mean, that is, I mean, it, it sounds like a lot. It, it's not like a cop-out answer because there is so much that goes along with it. But, I mean, to me, that 96 to 98 era, um, not just with WWF, with wrestling as a whole, I think, uh, it, to agree that that's one of the best eras, if not the best era, that attitude, extreme era, and when there was Monday night competition. But for Undertaker, I think that's his main highlight was, I think the Undertaker-Kane storyline was peak undertaker and i think that's when people that he was going up against were bringing out the best in him because he had sean to work with he had brett to work with he had kevin nash who was a guy his size who was not like the whole thing was that he was not intimidated by the undertaker and we had never seen that before so you had like this variety of opponents and the variety of reasoning behind the storylines and i think that was the thing is that you got a different undertaker almost on a monthly basis back then yeah, I, I like that you bring up Diesel because that was one of the earlier at, at the point when we started watching Raw, I discovered a video store that had every WCW and WWF VHS that was available at the time. And they got in the pay-per-views as they were released. And I started going through, I rented all the WrestleManias, I rented, rented all the Rumbles, but the WrestleMania 12 match versus Diesel mm -hmm. was, at the time, the best big man match I had ever seen. In retrospect, Kevin Nash, I, I've changed my opinion on him a little bit because going back and watching some of the stuff in 94, 90, right now, I'm, I went back to May of 1994 and started watching Raw's. And I'm up to August of 1995 right now. And Nash never really was very good. No. I, I, at one point in my life, I thought that he was a pretty good big man. But my gosh, that powerbomb is the worst looking move. It's the laziest. It's the laziest powerbomb in wrestling. My gosh. Uh, but anyway, that match, you know, Taker brought out the best in Nash in that match. And when you go back and watch it, uh, you know, you see Nash is not exactly working his ass off, but Taker is pulling his best out of him. Which he kind of had to because that was also Nash's last match in WWF for many years. Yeah. So <laughs> he, he had no reason he to care no at that point. Yeah. Right. Well, right. he had the Michaels match the following month. That's when uh, uh, they used Mad Dog for Sean's leg, the good friend's better enemies oh that's yeah. right i forgot about that they had that match but Na i mean nash was always all personality whether it was nwo yeah. diesel like you yeah, know it was yeah. always the charisma and the personality but that whole thing like you know you would have uh you know undertaker almost had the hogan formula for a while where it was like you know the monster of the month you know harvey wolfman brings in kamala he brings in yeah. giant gonzalez like you know that type of thing nash was one of the first people to kind of carry himself against them you know the whole like i'm not afraid of the dark I'm not afraid of you. And then smashing the casket. Like that was like, he was using undertaker's gimmick against him, which we talked about the protection of the gimmick. So the fact that they kind of went that far with it was also something that we hadn't seen before. Like nobody ever trashed the undertaker. It was always, I'm going to bury you. I'm a bigger monster than you. And Nash was just like, this is, this is kid stuff. Like you don't scare me. You turned out the lights. Ooh, I'm not afraid of you. 
And I think that that when they started adding the realism, like kind of like blurring the line, you know, the, the insider lingo, like the stuff that you'd only see in like, you know, the wrestling observer newsletter and stuff like that to try to appeal to those ECW fans. Cause you know, that era, that was, you know, the era of the rebel, you know, the, the era of ECW when people were tired of the gimmicks. And even through that, you didn't see hear people saying boo about the undertaker because he was adapting that way. And, and Nash deserves credit for kind of stepping up uh, the personality game there and I think that's what really carried that feud. It wasn't so much the match. Um, and Undertaker, you know, until the, the late 90s, he was never really about the matches because the, the things with Giant Gonzalez and, and Kamala, yeah. I mean, those are, not, those are not rewatchables. You know, they're rewatchables for all the wrong reasons. Well, and he, uh, he was, was a gimmick. He was doing what he was told. Yeah, he was a gimmick there, wrestler who sell. was out there, yeah just, yeah, just doing the moves of that character. And he had no reason to go out there and... Uh, Although he was doing really athletic things, the rope walk was something sure. that a guy his size was not normally doing at that point. So uh, still showing off some really good athleticism, uh, but he wasn't putting on five-star classics in 1995. But I, I do think, Chris, that you're right in that as the 90s went on, he saw guys like Brett and Sean moving to the top of the card and that they were more agile and faster and that he... he I think he knew he was going to have to change his game to keep up with those guys. And I, you know what? He probably, for the listeners, if you haven't been keeping up with the stuff that's been going up on the WWE Network this month, uh, get in there. There's a Paul Bearer documentary that's incredible. Uh, there's a Brothers of Destruction that's Ugh. a conversation between Undertaker so and Kane that's fantastic. Uh, lots of really great stuff up there. Uh, so I'm, I'm uh, as I watch... WWE slowly erode the rights of their contracted, uh, not employees. What's the word? I'm, what are they? What are they? Independent contractors. Independent contractors, uh, and make my decision about whether or not I'm going to continue supporting them uh, up through Survivor Series, which I will absolutely be watching. I'll be enjoying the content on the network. Uh, Mike, what is your next favorite thing about Undertaker? The streak. Oh no! How how sad were you? Uh, the streak, and I'll tell you, it, it it's not this. You know, I as I mentioned before, the aesthetic, uh, the look, the persona, the the drama of his entrance and and the whole character is what attracted me. The streak made me appreciate him as a storyteller in the ring, um, because you know by the time I was watching. I mean, I love the fact that the streak was never something that they planned, right? It was like yeah. they just, he just kept winning and winning and winning. And it just so happened that, you know, they had like seven or eight or whatever it was, 10 under their belt. And they went like, holy crap, he's never lost. <laughs> like, like they just connected with them and that we got to, we got to do something with this. So, so by the time I'm watching it, you know, the streak is a thing and you pretty much know. You know, when The Undertaker goes to face Randy Orton, when he goes to face Mark Henry, when he goes to face Batista, you're kind of like, yeah, this outcome is 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 a done deal. We know that The Undertaker is going to go over here. Um, and yet, The Undertaker makes those matches compelling. Yeah. Um, to the point where when you get someone who's really good with uh, storytelling as much as he is, and, you know, from 2009 to 2012, you've got the two Shawn Michaels and two Triple H matches. Those matches, I believe, are some of the best matches I've ever seen in the ring, period. And, and enough for me to go, I think he's going to lose. I think he's going to yeah. lose. Like, I mean, this, continuously. This could be like, big enough 
Yes. For this to be it. Yeah. And, and those were, um, and that's all because of the guys in the ring selling it. You know, it wasn't anything uh, outside, uh, anything else to do with that. I mean, sure. The, the, the uh, athleticism is there, but um, and I also think that he stepped it up for those matches too. I mean, certainly there were other matches uh, that I saw in his career that were decent, but you know, when I think about like the times that the matches that I've seen the, his best matches, it, it seemed like he, he upped his game at WrestleMania. Cause I think he knew that it was important um, that he was one of the draws of WrestleMania and that he had to put on like a great show. Now, sometimes it didn't always pan out, but um you know, I, I think he put the effort in and it made me appreciate it made me appreciate him as a storyteller that way. Well, and what's wild is, you know, what you said when you discovered The Undertaker, or when you started to see his work, he had already been on top of the business for 10 years. Absolutely. That's unprecedented because nobody's on top of the business for 10 years. Like not anymore. Anyway, like you had Bruno San Martino and uh, I don't know. Did Hogan even really have a 10 year run? Not, uh, not in the WWF. Well, that's, I mean, his time on top, I, I think is his WWF time when he was in WCW, he was vital. He was entertaining, but I, I mean, can you even really compare when, when you look back, and when you think about wrestling fandom, and, and actually not even wrestling fandom, the general population, when you mention how big Stone Cold was, how big The Rock was, when you talk about those names, do you think any average citizen is going to be like, well, yeah, but look at Hollywood Hogan over on Nitro. I mean, sure, he was in Three Ninjas, Mystery Mountain, or whatever it was. Mega Mountain. <laughs> Mega Mountain. I was high noon at Mega Mountain or whatever. Uh but like, I don't know. Even though he was the top draw on Nitro, I don't know that I consider that time at the top of the business. To to me, just from from coming from where I watched everything and was always into everything, I I mean I was never a Hogan guy. But when he went to when he was in WWF, it was okay. It's the Hogan show for the most part, and it's kind of like whoever you like is pretty much going to be either the one A. Or always underneath him, like you know, yeah. Macho Man. Randy Savage always like. <laughs> but when he was in WCW, I never, ever in my head thought I'm watching WCW and it's the Hogan Show. I'm watching Sting. I'm watching Ric right. Flair. We like, weren't was, there for Hogan. Exactly. Like WCW needed Hogan to appeal to that casual fan base to kind of lure them in because their franchise players were not as well known or as well marketed to the mainstream right but to wrestling fans wcw you know, he was the interloper he was the outsider yeah which led yeah to fame in the nwo like that that's why that worked so well so for me it was never like oh man hogan's coming to wcw like maybe this will be different maybe this will be cool it was like all right well how's this going to affect you know the four horsemen how's this going to affect right. sting like i still want to see my favorite guys and then you know, as history, you know, that's that's a subject for a whole other podcast. Is, sure, sure. Is Hogan's effect on the business in, in WCW? Um, but you know, with with the Undertaker, he always like I you know we we were talking about the transition to the badass and, and Booger Red and that that goofy early two thousands mid two thousands phase. But he never 
lost his luster. Like even at that stage, he yeah. was fighting against Brock. Like he was fighting against Angle. He was fighting against Rock. Like he was still right up there. Like he never got phased down. Like he had the stuff like uh, you know fighting RVD and Jeff Hardy on Raw. Like he had those little mini programs that didn't he survived go Nathan Jones. <laughs> yeah, the, you know the, the Nathan Jones portrayal. I, and I don't mean this as he could have been the next big thing or, or a great worker, but the whole concept was you have a convict that just got released from prison from Australia that is entering your federation. So he should be presented as a natural born killer that can't be contained, which they have done a million times over these strongman psychopaths. Yeah. And the whole gimmick was, hey, Taker, I don't know how to wrestle. Can you teach me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah there there uh, was uh let's we'll, we'll just leave it at this fortunately nathan jones is a pretty darn good actor and yes. uh he's had a fine career after <laughs> post wwf you were uh, mentioning about how the streak was not really something they that they planned and it was something that kind of came about naturally i remember that i think it i think it was the first time they really played it up was when he faced randy orton and yeah. they were doing mm-hmm. the legend killer yeah. and and you started thinking back, and you're like, "Oh yeah," but he was beating guys like Kamala and right. Giant Gonzalez and Jimmy Snuka. Well, and that's what I was gonna say. Even Jimmy Snuka is not a yeah, way way past conquest. his prime. Almost yeah. fifty year old Jimmy Snuka at that wearing freaking boots. Yeah. Uh, so he beat Boots Snuka. Come on. <laughs> they they managed to turn that, uh, you know, just beating you know C level Geek of the Week uh, guys to getting in there and, and, and fighting against the top guys every yeah. year to the point where like you started thinking, Oh, who's the undertaker going to face this year? Like that was the, the day after WrestleMania, that was the first thought on your mind was like, okay, who's, who's next? next? Yeah. yeah. He, yeah. he, he was more who's next than Goldberg was yeah. for Goldberg. <laughs> who's next was like, will it be fit Finley or Alex? Wright? Yeah. But, and that's going to be next week. Choices. <laughs> right. Yeah, wait, don't get me wrong. Fit Finley and Alex Wright are great, but you don't build a WrestleMania around them. Uh, yeah, the last thing I just want to say about the streak is I, I just, like you mentioned, all these other great guys um, that he was uh, up against, but I don't think anybody uh, could have done the streak better service than he did. Like, the, I don't think no, it works no. with anybody else mm-hmm. that, that you could name as a in the pro wrestling industry. Certainly, with that longevity, you, nobody could have made it to all of those WrestleManias. No, nobody's on that, top that long. Yeah. So. And nobody has that gravitas that, that he has. Right. It just only works for him. And I think that Batista match, that one from 2007, I think that a lot of people were really blown away by how good that match really is. Yeah. Because I think going into that one, people figured, all right, you know, probably like an average, above average kind of brawl. And the both of them, I mean, you know, there was always the joke about how, you know, uh, Cena would turn into big match John and have like these awesome matches at the big pay-per-views. But Batista, when he was in a major program, like he turned it up like he he was another guy that always put it forth. And then Undertaker, you know, he was always in it to win it at WrestleMania. And that match, I mean, that that's a really good match. And I don't think a lot of people immediately think of that one when they no, that's, Undertaker that's the match that made batista for me because i i had not bought into him mm-hmm. up until that point uh i didn't see him as more than uh just a a big a big crony guy like mm-hmm. i wasn't buying his push i wasn't buying his his anything and that match made him which undertaker mm-hmm. did for so many people yeah randy orton yeah yeah, well, Foley to me, Foley made Orton. 
The, yeah, the back the backlash. Yeah, but I mean, Undertaker spent the whole year of two. I, I actually just thought of this. I didn't think about it when I talked about it earlier. I was at the uh, infamous Orton Undertaker Hell in a Cell with the uh, the hepatitis C scare. Oh, right. At uh, Armageddon 2005, that was also up here in the Northeast in Providence, and that's when uh, Bob, yeah Bob Orton bladed and they had the uh, the Hep C scare. He didn't mention that specifically, obviously, but that that gets brought up in one of the specials. I don't remember which one it is. He talks about working with Randy and and Bob. Uh, all right, let's see. Uh, oh, and real quick, we have to talk about it because the streak got brought up. How do we feel about the streak ending? Should it have happened? Uh, should it have been Brock? I think that. Uh, in retrospect, I, I didn't think it was a bad idea to do it. I think it made Brock into a huge star that they needed at that time. Um, I think that it should have been the end for the undertaker at that point. Um, I, I, I think it kind of cut, it tarnished him to keep going. Um, he had like the boneyard matches this year was great, but some of the stuff he's done since then at manias has not been his, uh, his lows since the streak ended have not been worth his highs I think if he had gone out on that that would have been uh, a good send-off for him um the bray wyatt match the next year was not good uh, it's not one of my favorite undertaker matches the not a match he did with john cena that one year uh was kind of embarrassing um <laughs> the roman match but the roman match was terrible. yeah the roman match the roman match did not do what it was meant to do um the shame and match. it should have turned roman heel Oh yes, it's it's oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, he <laughs> look, we all we I, all I, love Undertaker. We all admire the fact that he's carried on for as long as he has. But yeah, it probably should have ended with the streak. Uh, I don't think they should have ended the streak until his career was ready to end. Yeah. Uh, One could argue it was ready to end at that point. I, well, un until they knew it was going to end. Right. Uh, but I do think it made sense to have Brock be the guy because in his own way, Brock is as special as Undertaker is. Very different. Obviously doesn't have the longevity. Uh, obviously doesn't have the same gravitas. But he, he's a different, unique entry into the, the encyclopedia of professional wrestling. There will never be another Brock Lesnar. And even though it could be argued that he did not need that win, nobody else deserved that win. I would argue he did need that win because the first couple years he, after he came back, um, he lost that match to Triple H early on that kind of slowed down his momentum. Um, and yeah, he was, he was winning matches beyond that and still kind of being a special attraction, but it wasn't until he beat the streak that he became that star that had that aura. Yeah, that's true. Except and nobody before else... after he like, you know, beat Cena senseless after. Yeah. I mean, that kind of was yeah, the... the, the Cena. It's weird to say this, but that defeating Cena in that way was almost bigger than ending the streak. Yeah. I, that for me, it was, but, um, and look, I think they should have, like, from everything I've heard, the, the, the decision was made by Vince, like, that yeah. day. And I'm like, how do you end 
something like this that's so important how do you just make a decision like a, a quick decision on that you know undertaker like said when he got to the arena he was going over yeah yeah so it's like it to me it should have it should have um it, it was worth a lot more thought should have yes. been invested into it it should have been a huge program instead yeah. of just oh i feel like doing this this time you know i mean whatever I feel it like is that- what it is but I feel like that match kind of jinxed any type of big Undertaker comeback or any further matches, not even just like the WrestleMania matches. But if you look at what happened there, you know, they, they were not silly. Like it didn't, it wasn't a spectacular finish at all. It was more like a WTF type of finish. Yeah. But if you look at the stuff that they've tried to do, uh, stemming off of that over recent years, the match with Goldberg was a huge botch. The match where it was DX versus the Brothers of Destruction was a oh, huge gosh. botch. The match yeah. with Roman was just a misfire. It was like every time they've set him up either for this dream match with Goldberg or this big comeback story or to put the new guy over, it's never taken. And it, it didn't take until this past year, which given the circumstances, who knows how an actual match would have been. I mean, AJ Styles is one of the best in the world. So I'm sure he would have gotten a great match out of him. Yeah, three it, weeks, three so. weeks before that, were they even planning that cinematic match? Because that they were forced to do that because of COVID. Right. No, right. they weren't. They they weren't at all. There was going to be a match between him and AJ, and I think it would have been awesome, and I think it would have been a good send off. But in a weird way, I think the Boneyard match was the best possible scenario because he got to look awesome. Mm-hmm. He got to once again do something innovative and different and drastically a departure from anything else that had been done. And they did it in such a way that his limitations were easily covered. Mm-hmm. So honestly, you know, as cool as that match with AJ would have been, and as much as I'd I'd like to have seen it, this if this truly does cap his career. I think that Boneyard match was perfect. <laughs> and AJ's the guy he wanted to work with. He handpicked him. Yeah. Uh, all right. We got to keep going. Noel, you are up next. So I'm uh, one of my favorite memories going back to uh, 2007 Royal Rumble. Um, because that was The Undertaker had not really and I'm trying to remember how many Royal Rumble matches he was actually in prior to that. It wasn't a lot because usually he was participating in the card, but not actually in the, in the match itself. Um, And when he came out at number 30, nobody had ever come out at 30 before and won the Royal Rumble. Uh, You kind of thought in the back of your head, if you're thinking, if you're, you know, you're thinking how they're writing out these storylines. Well, it, it would be kind of cheap if the, the 30th man, they, they always play up that number 30 is the best number to have, but nobody from 30 ever wins. It's always right. you're in your, your mid to late twenties, or you start like really early and you have to overcome all the odds. Um, so when he came out at 30, because they had built it up to where you thought the undertaker is probably going to win the Royal rumble because they built that storyline of him having to qualify for the match to begin with that year. When he came out at 30, I thought, all right, He's going to be the last man to be eliminated and somebody else is going to go over and it's going to propel them to WrestleMania that year. Uh, So I was shocked. Uh, I was actually pleasantly surprised that they did that, especially with, with a baby face character to have him come out as the 30th man, that Royal rumble and win the match Um, just because they, a lot of time, a lot of times in wrestling, you, 
you kind of want things to play out a certain way and they and it's satisfying when they do but sometimes a surprise is also very satisfying and that was a year where i thought that surprise was extremely satisfying yeah he's i'm thinking about just his history in rumbles and when he has been in them which i don't think has been really often no it's usually in a match mm-hmm. but Typically, if he is in the Rumble, it's as a prop. He's either putting somebody over or furthering his own storyline in some way. Uh, yeah, him him winning, very unusual, especially under those circumstances. Yeah. Any other thoughts on that one, Chris? I would imagine you're probably on top of that one. As far as him winning the Rumble? I mean, yeah. with the Rumble... The rumble to me is always like, I think it's just a, a shot that where you can make someone into a star overnight. Like you could take anybody, I mean, mostly anybody and, and make them into something. And when a veteran wins, it's not that I don't think a veteran should win, but to me, I think they could have gone another way to get undertaker to WrestleMania. Like, I don't think he necessarily needed it, but I think for the historical context, because he's been there for so long and because it is something different, it's almost kind of like one of those, you know, the, the, the token win. Like, you know, here's your gold watch. Yeah, you for... want you want him to be able to check that off his list. That's mm-hmm. part of why that's satisfying. Yeah, and yep. I think we talked about this before, Dave, about how uh, Undertaker didn't win a whole lot of world championships, and he, right. he, he wasn't carrying that title for a long time, considering how long he's been a star. The streak was really his big thing, but you did want to see him have those other milestones and the rumble a rumble win is one of those milestones well he i mean in a way he transcended that belt he never he never needed the the title ever sometimes it needed him uh but he he was always really above championships in a way uh all right uh i am up next and since this is the Needless Things podcast, you know what we do here. We've got to talk about Undertaker action figures. Uh, I've got a couple here listed. I, Noel and Mike, I know you guys are maybe a little out in the cold on this one. But uh, I just want to mention sort of my, my, my favorites, and then I'll narrow it down probably with your help, Chris. Uh, one of the first ones that that came out that I was aware of and that I now have mint on card in a protector, not because it's worth anything, but because I love it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jack specifics, WWF superstars series two. There is a glow in the dark undertaker. Uh, It's, it's the old bone crunching action. They've got like the rubber arms and legs with the wire uh, armature where you move their elbows and their knees and they make little cracking sounds. Uh, and it's, it's a cool, it's the same thing as the series one undertaker, but it glows in the dark. Yep. And I had to have it. And I didn't even know about this figure. I knew about the series one figure and it's actually a pretty cool figure for, mm-hmm. for Jax, um, or, or for that era of Jax, I guess. Uh, but I found out about this glow in the dark one just a few years ago. And I immediately went on eBay and got it's pristine. You can buy most of that early Jack stuff. You can get men on card for like 20 bucks. Yeah. Like yeah there are a few pristine. exceptions here and there, but in general, like if there's a specific 
wrestler that you're like, you know what? I'd like to have a figure of them from that era. You can get a really nice one for, for a reasonable price. And I, I just had to have this one. I love this glow in the dark taker. Uh, another favorite of mine, and this is moving up to the Mattel era is the defining moments undertaker from mm-hmm. WrestleMania 15 in his incredible match. Hell in a cell against big boss, man. Uh, <laughs> Not really the match that's significant. It's the figure that's significant. He's got the big giant cape with like the raven feathers or whatever it is on yep. the top. Uh, it's it's a sort of Ministry of Darkness type look. Yeah, it's like that sorcerer's cloak type of thing. Right, yeah. right. Very, very cool figure. But I think my all-time favorite Undertaker figure is the Network Spotlight figure. Mm-hmm. It's, it is the Ministry of Darkness Taker with the big robe. Yep. Uh, it's it specifically needs that Undertaker throne that he would sit in at the time, mm-hmm. the big X with the T. Yep. But it's the likeness is fantastic. It's his uh, you know post literal Undertaker looking dude gear under the robe. The big it's a big soft goods robe. It's, it looks great because. Uh, a, a robe like that is very easy to do in soft goods at that scale. Not everything is, but a robe is pretty easy to pull off. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's my favorite Undertaker figure. Uh, Chris, off, off the top of your head, without preparation, do you have any favorites? Uh, yeah, well, it's funny because actually last night I actually found the uh, the 30 and 0 collector's edition. So I actually purchased that one last night. Yeah. But, it, you know, it, it has the unfortunate... Uh, rubber trench coat where you can't pose them I, in any way. I hate, I hate the rubber coats, man. I'm hoping to find that Decade of Domination one because that's a really good-looking figure. Um, haven't seen it here yet. But my favorite one right now, just because it's also a combination of one of my favorite things, is I love the fact that they used him as the basis for the scare glow in the WWE yes. Masters of the Universe. Yes. I think that's one of the best figures that they have done. As, as far as like, I think that and the Macho Man arms are probably my two favorites right now. Um, but as far as like actual Undertaker figures, I mean, I think uh, looking back at the Hasbro figures, because some of them did look a little off or a little cartoony and stuff, I think his was one of the best of the Hasbro bunch. Yeah. Just from, from likeness to look and everything. And he had a mechanism that was a, a wanted mechanism. He didn't have like a Ric Flair, you know, where you couldn't do anything except the little uh, muscle pose. Um, and then with Mattel, it was elite. It was in like like the, the elite forty something or fifty something. But it was like that nineteen ninety five Undertaker that came with the uh, Phantom of the Opera mask after his face had gotten busted. And they're redoing that one. Yes, that's going to be in. Um, I forget what wave, but I saw. Yeah, it I can't. Rem- I can't it. remember if it's if it's one of the regular waves or if it's another. Like the fan central or, or yeah whatever. yeah but yeah it's got the hair that hangs over the mask this actually time. it's in the, it's in the legends line it's Le- legends that's series right nine or ten that's right yep. he's in there with I think DDP and Nikolai Volkov yeah yeah yep. Nikolai Volkov with no Russian symbol on his jacket and and DiBiase DiBiase in the suit yeah the I think D- he's, the fourth he's one. got the it's the silver DiBiase and then the, I think the black one is the chase maybe or vice versa yep yeah. Yeah, yep. uh, that the taker with the mask. I'm excited about that one. That that one's really good. And then there's one. Um, Zach, my son has it. It was the one from the uh, basic two pack, but it was before the basics were were dumbed down, so they still had the decent articulation. Yeah, and it was uh, the WrestleMania match with uh, him and CM Punk. So he's got the mohawk. 
And yeah, it's yeah. got a really good likeness. Like it's it's uh, probably my favorite of the basic Undertakers. I like uh, the basic one hundred Undertaker the, with the tongue out. Yes, yep. I think that one that that one's cool. It's it's, but I never even saw him in this area. None. I never saw basic one hundred at all. Oh, really? We got flooded in this area. <laughs> yeah, we, we had distribution. It's just how it is yeah, right now. Yeah. I want to throw um, my love in for the Maximum Sweat Undertaker figure. Yes, which <laughs> yes, most uh, most of the Maximum Sweat figures I didn't care for, but I thought because of the Undertaker's character, it worked really well for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a really really cool sculpt for him, and I also agree with the the Hasbro figure. He was one of the ones that I thought really worked very well with the Hasbro aesthetic because and, he was such a gimmick. And by the way, for the listeners, you can find a video review of that Maximum Sweat Undertaker on the Needless Things YouTube channel. (laughs) But uh, sensitive viewers, beware, there is gore. (laughs) Uh, Mike, have you gotten any experience with Undertaker figures at all? Like, just in passing, have you seen anything that you're like, that's pretty cool, I wouldn't mind having that? Uh, Sorry, nothing uh, comes to mind. Uh, I mean, I can see where he would make a great figure. I mean, he's got the character and all the all the costume designs that he's had over the years. I could see where, you know, you could have, you know, 50 of them, really. And uh, they'd all be, you know, pretty outstanding. He's he's got dozens. He's he's I mean, he's got at least 100 figures, right? Oh, easily. Easily. Yeah. Probably uh, so just yeah, in the Jack's bone crunching alone with the way they re-released. Yeah, things. well, yeah, not yeah, not counting the the same one released eight times, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and also across all the four packs and everything. Oh my gosh, yep. yeah, the Titan Tron, Ruthless Aggression, all that yeah. stuff. Does he have? Is is he is his character the most of any other wrestler? I'd I'd be well. I don't know because. Cena's got a lot of figures. Yeah, there, there was one point. I mean, I remember because I used to do the the ordering when uh, they would send us the PDF to to place the wholesale orders. And there was a point where I think Cena was in every Ruthless Aggression set for like ten sets straight. Yeah, and that's when they were doing like the half sets. So it was like Ruthless fourteen point five. Yeah, they'd have the point fives, and he'd but, be in both of them. There's actually an Undertaker from that time period. It was before he added all the extra tattoos, so he still had the sour tattoo on the throat, mm-hmm. and it was, he had the he had like a soft goods coat and the hat and everything. I want to say it was maybe like Ruthless sixteen or something, but that might that was one of the best uh, Jacks versions of the Undertaker. Jax I used to have that did, one on my desk. Jacks did a bunch of cool ones, and then like the like Noel mentioned the Maximum Sweat, but they also had stuff like Ripped and Ruthless. I've actually still got mm-hmm. the Ripped and Ruthless one that is. It's you know not articulated really. It's a statue basically, mm-hmm. but it's a great looking figure, mm-hmm. awesome Undertaker figure. Uh, and then they did the twelve inch ones with the soft goods. They're like GI Joes. Yes. Yep. What are the uh, full, uh, Federation fighters? Right. Yep. Yeah. Um, I'd have to look it up, but that's what rings a bell. We had we had those, and I can't for like, like those actually collected dust for a while. <laughs> like. They were. They did not move fast at all. No, well, nobody wanted them, but I bought the Undertaker because, and I just realized this. It's the network spotlight one that I was talking about. It's got the big robe and everything, and his his sort of standard late nineties gear underneath it. Uh, great, great figure. But anyway, yeah, yes, yeah Federation obviously. fighters with the uh, with the blue packaging. Yeah, yeah, yep. they they came in the big. Yeah, yeah. Um, so obviously, a guy who's had tons of action figures, very, very toyetic, looks has tons of great looks uh if you're listening to this 
really, you should just jump on eBay right now and look up Undertaker action figure and get yourself an Undertaker. Even or peer pressure. As, as Chris mentioned, there's uh, currently a 30th anniversary Undertaker that's a Walmart exclusive uh, and a decade of domination Undertaker that's also Walmart exclusive, so that's terrible. Uh, and they're both great. I, I managed to find both of those. And Chris, I'll keep an eye out for that decade one. Uh, if I see, because I've so far I've only found them in one Walmart, and they're like seven that I hit regularly, and I haven't seen them, so I'll keep an eye out. But yeah, the the decade one is actually his first appearance, the only time he wore the black gloves. Mm-hmm. All right, moving on, uh, back to Chris. What you got? So this one is probably one that uh, most people don't immediately think of, but I think the concept of pairing these two together was something that could have worked in the long term if you wanted some type of Road Warriors dominant tag team. And it was uh, his short-lived alliance with the Big Show in the summer of 99. I think that that was a good way to rehab the Big Show from coming in and getting defeated immediately three weeks in. Um, I, I felt that he was kind of... Not a flop, but the the whole concept of bringing in the big show as this big badass and someone jumping ship, which is usually always going to have the fans immediately into you, especially at that stage of the game. Um, I think that they kind of failed on making him into a big deal, and he was just kind of a bit player in the overall storyline. So I think by having a, them... A, a bitch player, if you will. Well, bringing him in subservient to McMahon in the way that they did. Just I mean, curious. if anything... The, the way they could have gotten around that, it's just so simple as far as like old school booking. Um, if you go back to like the days of Memphis or world class, just have McMahon put a bounty on Austin's head. Be like, hey, yeah. you know what? hundred grand if someone comes and takes him out. And then, holy crap, this guy just popped out from under the ring. Wait a minute. That's, we've seen that guy before. You know, we know who he is. You know, that whole uh, hinting at who he is and stuff. But, but the whole thing where uh, Kane was with X-Pac and they were kind of uh, making a break to get them away from each other, but they were still intertwined and everything. The Undertaker and Big Show, uh, you know, if you don't want to keep the Undertaker in a full-fledged tag team, that I completely get. Yeah. But to have them aligned and to have them as part of something, which, I mean, a lot of it also ended because Undertaker went away for a while to, to rehab some injuries because it was September of 99 when he pretty much vanished and then we didn't see him until he came back as the badass. Um you know, eight months later, nine months later. But I, I think that their tag team is a really underrated uh, twist in WWE booking. That, that was something that I was kind of like, oh, like, you know, let, let's see where this goes. And then uh, as things were uh, known to do in the Attitude Era, it just kind of went, you know, pretty quickly. <laughs> but I, I think that that was like a little short-lived thing that that was really cool. And uh, I, I also liked, you know, we talked about how he was not a guy who needed a championship to be on top of the card or or to be a major player. But I like how, even though he's uh, had a little bit of a controversial rep in the two thousands for, you know, not selling for the WCW guys and being the, the locker room leader a little too strongly uh, that little run he had with the hardcore title. He had a lot of fun matches on raw with Rob Van Dam, the, the famous match with Jeff Hardy that they just made the two pack of, Uh, going back to the action figures, they made like the two pack with the likenesses based on that match. He was a really entertaining part of raw at that time when they were kind of scrounging for things to appeal to the fan base. Cause it's when they first split the rosters and he was pretty much like the cornerstone of raw for a while while they were building up all these other players around him, uh, you know, bringing Eddie Guerrero back in and, and people like that. Well, and that's, over the years, he has served that role many times when 
they have lost key players. Uh, they have lost their big names, their main eventers, and you call Undertaker, put him at the, you know, maybe not always at the top of the card, but you put him in a, a spot where he's consistency. He keeps things running while they reshuffle and figure out what the future is. And he always does it. He's always yeah. successful at it. He's always entertaining. Uh, he's always compelling. Um, yeah, the, if, if you listen to interviews with Big Show, he's actually said that that time with Taker saved his career. Mm-hmm. That WCW had not taught him anything about professional wrestling. Hmm. Uh, that he was, he was green and arrogant and knew nothing. And that just that little bit of time, Undertaker's wing, is what allowed him to have the longevity he's enjoyed since then. Mm-hmm. And and that's awesome. And a lot of people, you know, mostly when you hear people talk about Undertaker, it's usually that kind of stuff. That, you know, you talk about locker room leaders, but he really is the guy that says, look, you need to do this this way. And he's right. It's not... It doesn't come from a place of arrogance. It comes from a place of wanting the business to be the best that it can be. Right. Wanting and, everybody to benefit as much as possible from the business. And that's why I hope that urban legend is true because, you know, we've always heard, yeah, especially as the internet blew up and now you have message boards and Reddit and, and Twitter and stuff like that. So, you know, people can uh, bitch on a whim with just the stroke of a couple of keys. But that urban legend about how Shawn Michaels was uh, complaining about dropping the title to Steve Austin, supposedly Undertaker was sitting there just taping his fists up. Yes. Like ready to kill yeah. if it doesn't happen. Like that type is like to be who you are and then still like Hogan wouldn't have done that. Warrior wouldn't have done that. Like, you know, some of our favorite people were just only out for themselves behind the scenes. I mean, that's just, it, it's just how it is not only in wrestling, but I mean, any sport, any type of entertainment, you know, you're going to have those type of people. And to think that he really was at most points just out for the greater good. And he was trying to kind of invoke his status to make sure that everything was followed to a T. So, I mean, that's one of my favorite, you know, we don't even know if that story is true, but it's just one of my favorite things well, to go around. It's, and I mean, obviously the guys from that area are still, carney as fuck mm-hmm. but michael's taker and austin have all in one way or another confirmed that story so i gotta feel like and there are, there are other stories similar to that where taker mm-hmm. was kind of the enforcer guy um the like with with the screw job mm-hmm. where he was kind of with vince with you gotta do the right thing here like there is that sort of guardian angel aspect to him that rings true when you take all of the different accounts over the years into consideration. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. Well, you guys, we we've covered a lot of ground here. <laughs> I think we've got time for a speed round. What do you think? I'm down. Sure. I'm uh, so Mike, one last thing you love about Undertaker, throw it out there. Uh, I'm currently digging post-Taker Mark Calloway. Um, I will say that now that he's got all that behind him, we and he's finally able to like shed the the gimmick, you know, that has been protected for 30 years, where you know he wasn't 
um, we never got to meet him really, you know, I mean, he was always, you know, he didn't do a lot of interviews. Uh, you always remain in character, et cetera, et cetera. They just really protected him. And he felt like he needed to protect that character, uh, whether it was a mandate or not. And, but now we're seeing all these interviews with him. The WWE network, as you said, is, is got a bunch of programming. Uh, and so whether or not he's just sitting around talking to Steve Austin or the, that series, The Last Ride. Look, as bad as the matches have been, the the stories behind those matches yeah. and, and have been so compelling. It's um, the first time he's well, really broken character yeah. ever. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a whole new side of him that we're getting to see. Yeah, Absolutely. even in the American Badass era, he didn't break character. He right. was still a character then. We didn't know who the guy was. Right. Um. You know, mentioning the the stuff on the network, it, that last ride. You know, we talked about the quality of those matches, and he's frank about it. Yeah, he's not trying to put himself over. He's he's very honest about how things went. Uh, Noel, one last quick last quick ride. Uh, WrestleMania twenty five. For better or for worse, his match with Shawn Michaels changed WWE main events uh, forever. Um, because I was uh, I was in the Phantom Zone with you watching that. I remember when we were just gasping at every single false finish in that Blown match, away. every kick out. And WWF main events had never been done that way, really, uh, up to that point. Now, I think they overused that formula a whole lot. Um, but that was really kind of what got the ball rolling on that and that really i would say one of my top five uh matches in wwf history wwe history um when i think back about my favorite matches that's that's one that immediately pops into my head well and i don't think we went in i'm not going to say we were cynical about it but we certainly did not expect one of the greatest matches of all time. No, because at that point in time, we were still already at that point. Cause I was thinking five years before that, that the undertaker is right. right. You know, he, he's, he's got to be not, done. Yeah. He's, <laughs> he's not moving the way he used to. There's no way he yeah. can have these, these, these quality matches. Um, and he continued to surprise me. And that was, you know, a performance, both he and Shawn Michaels are 100% responsible for how amazing that, that match was. Well, I hate to bring everybody down, but, and, and as I said, I've been watching 94, 95 Raws and to my surprise, we got Ted DiBiase bringing out a fake undertaker on one of the Raws that I was watching. And I got to tell you guys, I don't know how everybody felt about it at the time. I think, Chris, I believe you said that people were leaving during the match. Mm-hmm. I loved it. <laughs> I thought it was really fun. I, In watching it, I, I could see at the time what's going on here. Like, that's not Undertaker, but he looks enough like Undertaker. What are they doing? What's the story? What's the deal? And then when Undertaker actually shows up to confront this faker Mm -hmm. dude it was awesome and the match you know the match is what the match is but he beats him in eight freaking minutes and and it's done which i kind of appreciate 
that Taker comes back, asserts himself, and it's over. Like <laughs> I, I really had fun with this storyline. I didn't hate it only because I have always been uh, a mark for primetime Brian Lee. I, yes. was, I was a big Smoky Mountain fan. So I'm like, wait a minute. That's Brian Lee's Undertaker? <laughs> uh, I, my whole thing was, oh, they didn't let him stick around. And then he went to ECW. And, and that's a whole other story. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, and the Leslie Nielsen storyline, trying to find the Undertaker before that, is still one of my favorite campy things. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. They, they made it so much fun. They, they made it. Well, I was just going to say they made it more goofy than your normal Undertaker story. Like, there's never really been a lot of comedy in an Undertaker story, yeah. and, and the whole premise was, you know, th that naked gun spoof with Leslie Nielsen. Um, you know, you, you crack the case or whatever you said at the end of the show. Well, and that's part of what was fun about it was that all of that was goofy. And and look, in in what I'm watching, there's a lot of silly, silly shit. And Vince McMahon says some, like, ridiculous stuff. Like, uh, if I hear him comment on Mantar's thighs one more time, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> but uh, Undertaker himself was never silly. And that's... Uh, I said he came back and asserted himself, and that's exactly what it was. He came back, and like there was no silliness about him. He he destroyed Brian Lee and moved on. And I'd just like to say I was a big fan of Brian Lee and TNA. I really liked his character there. I liked what he did there. And he had uh, one of the coolest pins I've ever seen in my life. Uh, I don't remember who it was. I think it was when him and... Uh, Oh gosh, because it's Slash? Yeah, Slash, Slash yeah. Her tag team. Yep. And they beat the shit out of a couple of guys. And Brian Lee uh, got down on his knees with one knee on the guy's like sternum and one knee on his belly and just put his arms up and pinned the guy like that. My I think favorite it was the hot shots. I, I, think, I think that might have been like the hot shots. Um, one of them, they, they had become the naturals years later. Oh, I, yeah, I think, I think right. it might have been them. That sounds plausible. I'll accept that. Uh, but yeah, I, I thought it was a fun thing and, and, you know, you can, you can watch it in, you know, raws back then or 42, or if you go watch raw on the network from back then, it's 42 minutes. I've been mm -hmm. burning through these things. So I thought uh, that was really fun. I long for 42 minute raws. No, no shit. <laughs> oh my gosh. All right. Well, Chris is up to you. Bring us home. What is your quick pick to wrap this thing up? Uh, the original face turn when he saved Miss Elizabeth and was confronted by Jake. And Jake's like, whose side are you on anyway? And he very simply goes, not yours. And uh, <laughs> that uh, that set the WrestleMania match in motion, uh, getting his hand slammed in the casket and just dragging it. Like, you know, Jake was doing everything in his power to, to try to weaken him. And he wouldn't go down. And it's like, all right, you just you just made your new Hogan right here. Like, this is the guy that everyone is going to stay behind it and get behind right there. And the fact that it was linked to Macho Man, who's one of my all-time favorites, um, you know, I, I appreciated the fact that they kind of did that thing where he stayed linked to the top stars while they also started carving his own new path for him. So I just think that was a, a brilliant bit of booking because other than when they used uh, Sarah, uh, his wife at the time, in the storyline, there was never any type of Gaga stories with a woman in The Undertaker. Yeah. So that that was so, you know to show that he was like this merciless killer, but now you want to try to hit a woman that that's not going to fly, not even with me. Like I thought that was a really nice intricate bit of storytelling at the time. Do you guys think anybody other than Jake could have cemented that turn? 
Um, maybe Flair. Mm. Maybe maybe if Flair had because Flair had been feuding with Savage, maybe if he had snapped or, or tried to do something, um, because I think Flair's personality could have carried it. But if it was somebody like Nails or Warlord or something like that, <laughs> I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't think it would have flown. <laughs> no, you could foil Flair, uh, uh, DiBiase possibly, DiBiase, yeah. especially with their history, could have, oh, could have yeah. been a good foil yeah, yeah, for yeah. him. But no, the J- uh, Jake was perfect because their characters kind of blended together. So them being them them being allies and then eventually being foes of one another really worked perfectly into that story. Well, and Jake's Jake's inherent weirdness lent itself to Undertaker's supernatural nature, right? Uh, it, it really that really was a magical pairing that I, I wish we could have gotten a little bit more of, honestly. Yeah, and that's what they should have done with Bray Wyatt years later. But but, uh, but then they tried to make him like match him with the magic. Uh, yeah, like, that was so bizarre. He would have been a much better like apprentice. Uh, they should have done what they did with with Big Show and with Nathan Jones. They should have been sort of an apprentice type thing, and then you have them turn and you get the big feud out of that. Mm-hmm. I think that would have made a lot more sense. Because honestly, Wyatt at the time did not have the, the, I've used this word a couple of times now, but Wyatt did not have the gravitas to be going up against Undertaker at that point. No. They, they had not built him to that point. And, and if they had had that relationship prior, then it would have worked better, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, you guys. Well, this has been a phenomenal conversation about the Phenom. Uh, any last thoughts before we go? Is there is there any one thing that you you came in wanting to make sure you said that maybe you didn't get to say? I think I've said my piece. Yeah, yeah. I think I think we can all rest in peace. Yeah, there you go. That's what I was waiting for. Uh, you guys, thank you so much for coming on and talk about Undertaker. But obviously, before we go, you have to let us know where we can find you online and what you're up to. Uh, Chris, why don't you start us off? All right. So for those who don't know, I am the chief marketing officer over at figurestoycompany.com. Uh, if you want to look for some cool wrestling products, we hold the license to Ring of Honor professional wrestling action figures. Uh, we also do the Legends of Pro Wrestling and the Rising Stars of Wrestling action figures. They're all made in the Jack's Ruthless Aggression slash classic style. Uh, coming up just in time for the holidays, uh, the Scott Norton first ever action figure for the Legends line will be out. Uh, we're also expecting the first ever Vince Russo action figure to be out. <laughs> And then from the rising stars of wrestling, uh, Shane Strickland, who is now in NXT as Isaiah Swerve Scott, and AEW's bad boy Joey Janela, both of their first-time ever figures, should be in uh, by the end of this month, uh, if not early December. And then besides that, you can also find some very cool retro figures done in the style of the old Mego figures for DC Comics, Kiss, Hanna-Barbera, The Three Stooges, a whole lot of stuff coming out. Uh, The new Swamp Thing figure will be out very soon. Uh, Just got some new ones in over the last couple of months, like the Death of Superman figure for the Super Friends line. Uh, We've got Santa Claus, if you like Christmas collectibles. So hit us up at figurestoycompany.com. You can follow us on social media at figurestoyco, at WRES underscore Superstore on Twitter for our Wrestling Superstore site. Just look up the companies on Facebook and Instagram to follow us there. And you can find me on Twitter at Zach Malibu. Yeah, and you got Wrestling Superstore has a ton of vintage stuff as well. Yes, yeah, we've got like a lot of older figures, um, a lot of dead stock. We've got accessories. So if you have dioramas or displays, uh, we have urns, we have shovels, we have tombstones. So <laughs> anything you need for a buried alive match or an Undertaker display can be found. Uh, also, a very cool steel cage playset that is now back in stock that fits our real scale ring. And I can't remember if we discussed this off the air or on air. 
so I won't specify. But isn't there another holiday surprise coming up soon? There are quite a few holiday surprises coming up soon, so we might have to narrow that but down. One specific gentleman in holiday attire, a suit perhaps. I'm waiting to see if that's coming out. Okay. A Santa Claus yeah. figure coming out. <laughs> Santa Claus. <laughs> Great. Uh, but speaking of Santa, there are what you, you've got like you've got three different Santas. Yeah, we've got the, we've got the regular Santa, and then we've got the one with uh, like the open coat with the vest. Um, there's Mrs. Claus. There are the Kissmas two packs. Yes, with yes. Santa and Kiss. Uh, there's the uh, Christmas time <laughs> nice. with the three Stooges. Because if you remember some of the old episodes, they disguise themselves as Santa to get into uh, the guy's harem. Um, so there's that. There's uh, the monkeys in the Santa outfits. Uh, you can make a two-pack of a DC Comics character with Santa Claus. So there's a, a lot of Christmas options on the it, site right now. If I think that every toy collection needs a figures toy company Santa Claus, but if the idea of a Batman and Santa Claus two-pack does not appeal to you, I don't know why you're listening to the Needless Things podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Mike Gordon, what are you up to? Where can we find you online? Well, first of all, thanks for the invite. Uh, you know, one of the things about this year I've missed the most is hanging out with you guys uh, for pay-per-views. So the, oh, I know, to get together, talking wrestling. Uh, thank you again. It's been great. Um, you can find me, uh, my books, my podcast, everything that I'm doing is at newlegendmike.com. Uh, you can also find me weekly on the Earth Station One podcast, earthstation1.com. And Noel, what are you up to? Where can we find you? And uh, tell us about the finest current charity. Ooh, uh, I will do that. Um, so you can find uh, all 23 years worth of uh, material. Um, not often updated, but uh, I do like to say my site is older than Google. Not as old as the <laughs> under Undertaker streak was. Uh, actually, I think it now might hit that, uh, hit that point. Um, but it's at dorkdroppings.com. Um, you can also find me every week or actually every, every month, sometimes twice a month, uh, alongside Dave, uh, on the audible interlude podcast, talking about GI Joe and stuff. Um, I, I, you mentioned Mike about how I miss hanging out and watching wrestling, uh, watching pay-per-views also miss going to NWA power shows, which I'm oh my gosh. very mm. sad that COVID took that away from us this year. Yeah. Um, but, uh, on top of that, you mentioned, uh, the finest, uh, I am a member of the finest, which is a GI Joe costuming club, international club. Uh, and we raise money for a fantastic charity called canines for warriors. They pair dogs that are rescued from shelters. Uh, they pair them up with veterans who are either suffering from PTSD or need a service dog for any other reason. Uh, they train the dogs at a facility in Jacksonville, Florida, uh, and 100% of the donations that we take in as the finest goes directly to them. Um, and if you ever get a chance to go to a convention again and you see a finest booth, um, you can always donate money there, or you can always just drop by Canines for Warriors and send them a few dollars. They're a fantastic charity uh, that I'm, I have the, the privilege of getting to work with. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for coming on and talking about The Undertaker. And I hope you all rest in peace. Everybody, please continue to bear with me as I figure out Zoom, as I figure out, as I unfortunately figure out this new version of Audacity that I'm using that is 
very different from the old version that I've been so used to for the past seven years or however long I've been doing this now. Uh, I'm, I'm getting there. I'm figuring it out. I unfortunately was not able to include the Kane audio that I referenced when I was talking about the Inferno match. It just... The context wasn't right, and he doesn't directly talk about Undertaker, so it didn't feel quite right to stick it in this episode. But if you would like to hear my interview with Kane live at DragonCon, check out Needless Things Podcast episode 181. Uh, I do not have a paywall on the episode, so you can go wherever you find your podcasts and listen to that great interview. And I might be mistaken, but I think I never posted the Kane and Ricky the Dragon Steamboat interview. I'm going to have to go back and check, and uh, maybe we'll get that as a cool bonus episode or something at some point in the near future. I I, I might have a couple of Dragon Con, because that was in 2017. There might be a couple of Dragon Con panels that sort of fell by the wayside for one reason or another. I'm going to have to go back and take a look at that. But uh, that Kane interview is fantastic. Uh, the first 10 minutes of it are a little rough, but then it gets better, and he talks about the Inferno match. Uh, the, the panel was called The Horror of Kane. So it was Kane as he pertains to horror. It's really fun and good, and I listened to it on the way home today to find that Inferno story. Uh, so there you go. Thanks for listening. I love you guys. You have been listening to a Needless Things podcast. You can follow Needless Things on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and at needlessthingspodcast.com. Love you. Mean it. Uh Uh-huh.